This is Emergency Medicine Match Advice, sponsored by Academic Life in Emergency Medicine. This is a podcast series designed to help medical students and residents strategically navigate applying to emergency medicine residency and fellowship programs. I am your host, Sarah Krasaniak from Stanford University. Let's get started. Welcome, everybody, back to Alien Match Advice Podcast. I am Sarah Krasaniak. I am once again joined by my fearless co-host, Michelle Lynn. Hello, good morning. And also today, because I just love bringing friends onto this podcast, joined by Aaron Kraut, who's the program director of the Emergency Medicine Residency Program at the University of Wisconsin. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So this is our annual mid-interview check-in where we take a quick pause, check our own pulses now that we are in December of interview season. So we got a lot of things to cover today. I thought it might be helpful to start with just reminding everybody who we are, how long we've been in these roles to provide some context for all of the things that we'll be talking about today. So it's hard for me to believe, but I am going on to my fourth year of being a program director, which is very exciting. And I started as a program director in 2020. So as a program director, I've only been doing interviews in the virtual format. So that is my frame of reference. Michelle, what about you? Oh, I don't want to date myself, but I will. I was APD way back when we were starting the UCSF program, 2006, 2009. But you wonder why I'm still here on this podcast is because I love hanging out with the hardest working group in emergency medicine with your program directors. And I just want to lurk and be uh, in the cool kids club with you. Well, you know, Michelle, I will date myself then along with you because when I was applying for residency, you were the APD at the new UCSF program. And that was a real a real draw for me. So we we were in that era together. And then Aaron, what about you? Yeah, I, uh, I'm honored to be considered part of the coolest, hardest working group in emergency medicine. This is my, I can't believe it, my fifth year going on as the PD at the University of Wisconsin. And I had some experience in the non-virtual world. I was the APD and the associate PD starting in 2015. So I've seen both sides of it. Awesome. All right. Well, we are coming with a wealth of experience. And as usual, as I start to think about what we should cover in this session, the list just gets longer and longer. So I've tried to pare it down. Here's what I want to talk about today with all of you. And that is the ARIS data that we have out now, signaling and what is happening with signals. What should we do about post-interview communication? What should our students be doing with post-interview communication? And then to wrap it up, we're going to have Michelle Lynn put Aaron and I on the spot. Aaron and I have been interviewing for months and it's time for the tables to be turned. So that will wrap us up. Okay, so let's just start with some of the ARIS data. And I will tell you, I think this year more than any, program directors in emergency medicine across the nation are closely watching the ARIS data. And this is really because we had this unprecedented number of unfilled intern spots in really both the 22 and then the 2023 match. In fact, the 2023 match was so monumental, almost half of emergency medicine programs had an unfilled position in that initial match. And this was really eye-opening for us as a specialty. And Aaron, I don't know, do you remember, it just felt like the sky was sort of falling at this time. Oh, absolutely. Almost literally. I remember kind of panicked conversations with our chair and she heading down to the the meeting in Puerto Rico and raising a stir with all of her colleagues and 
thinking about what we were going to do to save the specialty. Absolutely. Yes, that save the specialty. I think that has been such a theme in all of the conversations that have come out. So all of us were anxiously awaiting the data that comes out from Eris, and it comes out in phases. We most recently had data that came out November 9th. Now, I have to put in a little bit of a shameless plug for a paper that was put out by Dr. Carl Prakshitis here at Stanford that included a couple of authors, including me and Michelle, that looked at factors associated with unfilled PGY1 positions. And what we found is that Smaller programs, those with less than eight residents, those in the mid-Atlantic or east-north-central regions, prior osteopathic accreditation, having unfilled positions in the 22 match, and then a corporate ownership structure were all associated with unfilled positions. We'll make sure that paper gets linked in the show notes in case you want to look it up directly. But again, we're all trying to figure out what happened, how do we prevent it, and really from the program perspective, what do we need to do? to increase our chances of filling in that first match. The good news is that really, overall, we've seen an increase in the number of applicants that are using ARIS. So this year, our numbers are up by almost 2,000. That is mostly represented in DO and IMG applicants. We have pretty static MD numbers. In emergency medicine, we actually saw an increase as well in the number of applicants by almost 1,100. That was 80 from the MD applicants, 400 in the DO applicants, and then 600 increase in the IMG applicants. Interestingly, we saw a decrease in the average number of applications that each applicant submitted. So that dropped by about 15%. So last year, applicants submitted about 56 applications, and this year it dropped to 47. But at the same time, programs saw an increase in the number of applications that we got. So the average number of applications per program was 637, and this year it was 710. We'll make sure we also link this because that's a lot of numbers. So let me pause there. Aaron, can you make any sense of this? Yeah. So let me first make sure I understand what you're saying, Sarah. So you're telling me that we had a lot more, a significantly larger number of applicants this year compared to last year. I think that that made us feel good, right? That made me feel good as a PD that, gosh, the reputation of emergency medicine is intact and we'll have people to fill these spots, but that folks are also applying individually to less programs for each of them. Uh, Okay. Yeah. That makes sense to me. Yeah. And I agree with you, right? Like we saw these and we thought, okay, like maybe the sky isn't totally falling. Potentially things are looking better. Now, like anything, this really just captures that quantitative experience. We just have numbers. What we don't know is the quality of these applicants. And are they dual applying? Are people using EM as their backup now when perhaps EM itself was the primary application and people felt like they needed to have a different backup? So we don't exactly know those numbers. I'll say we actually saw a bit of a drop in our average number of applications here at Stanford. It wasn't by a lot, but it doesn't jive with what overall happened nationwide with this increase in the average number of applications that came across. Yeah, that that was our experience as well here at the University of Wisconsin. It, it was a slight dip compared to the prior year in terms of number of applicants. But I know we're going to get to this in a minute, thanks to your wonderful intro and outline, but maybe it had to do with signals and people applying to the right places instead of just applying all over the place. Yes, that is an excellent segue. 
before I get there, Michelle, do you have any thoughts? I'm going to put you on the spot. Anything that you have to take away from these numbers? I do, actually. I, first of all, I am glad this is not the chicken little sky is falling scenario. So overall, very optimistic. I am just curious how the whole DOIMG mix of applicants is playing into this whole scenario because this is a, a brand new uncharted territory. Usually we are very heavily MD only type application season. So I mean, I don't have any forecast on it, but I think it'll be really interesting to track now dividing and stratifying each of these applicant groups and trending them in the future. Definitely agree. And really the match data then when this comes out and see how everyone is matching and, and what those numbers look like, it's going to be really telling. Absolutely. But I'm glad that they're more inclusive of DOs and IMGs. That's great. Absolutely. All right. So let's get into signal data. So this year was a little bit different. Applicants were able to signal last year, but they only got three signals. This year, applicants got seven signals. And that actually still puts us in sort of this smaller number of signal programs. When Eris talks about it, they talk about like small, medium, and large signal programs. And we're actually still sort of in that small range, even though we bumped up the number of signals. We have some preliminary data on what is happening with signals in emergency medicine. First of all, almost all of the programs used signaling, which makes a lot of sense. I think this is a total win really for applicants and for programs. On average, EM programs got a mean of 92 signals, but this ranged from 15 to 330. And actually what they found is that the top 10% of EM programs, based on the number of signals they received, received 23% of the total. So again, lots of numbers, but basically the signals aren't uniformly distributed. And we have some programs that are getting a large number and then quite a few programs that aren't getting quite as many signals. And really that sort of also mirrors the application numbers. In terms of applicant behavior, most applicants sent all seven. The, the mean was 6.73 signals. So that tells me applicants are really maximizing all of these seven signals. And this was really seen across all of the specialties. So Aaron, tell me, three signals versus seven signals. And let me just add, right, we also had the geo-preferencing this year. So applicants could tell us what regions of the country they were looking to live in for whatever reason. They were able to free text a reason. Do you feel like the signals, maybe with or without the geo-preferencing, landed differently this year? There's a lot of factors at play, I guess. Uh, you just outlined there's the geo-preferencing, the signals. There's this whole separate conversation about whether you should signal places you've rotated and that signal is implicit in the fact that you spent time there. All that aside, I do think they landed differently, at least from my perspective as a program director. On the one hand, the fact that applicants had so many more signals this year relatively, in my mind, it had to equate with them each having a little bit less of a weight, right? The first year we had signals, if someone signaled us, we felt really, right? You only get three of those and gosh, this person must really want to be here. Well, I think now in this current landscape, especially because of all the ARIS data we were discussing, perhaps it's a little bit less competitive for applicants to match in our specialty that the fact that they have seven preference signals to spread around, it, it just means a little bit less than me. I, I was thinking about gestalt-wise, it's great for the audience of this podcast, right? This really is more of a buyer's market for an EM applicant. And 
that's what signals are supposed to do, right? They're supposed to help applicants. So I'm happy about that. Yeah, definitely agree with you. If I have an applicant who didn't signal us, there's a part of me that's like, we we weren't even your top seven. And I get a little bit hurt because I just want to be the best for everyone. But I also have to remind myself that Students are putting these signals in super early, right? In the summers when they're really having to make this. And you learn a lot as you go through the interview season and you learn maybe more about what programs are offering or not offering. I think there's probably a lot of introspection and reflection that happens for applicants as well as they go through this process and thinking about really what's the program where they will be most successful. So certainly... We use the signals pretty heavily to decide who we were going to invite. But if we had an applicant that I thought was doing great things and would really fit well in our program and and that we could support, even if they didn't signal us, I thought, let me just get that person here, let them see what we're doing. And then that applicant can decide if, if we're a program where they would be successful. I remember when I was in the applicant shoes and I certainly changed my mind quite a bit about what I was looking for once I got out of the interview trail. And if I had been asked to signal, my signals absolutely would not have matched up with how I ended up on my rank list. I agree 100% with you. Like what I did at the the start of interview season ended up really being very different than how my rank list looked. Some of that may or may not have been related to the speeding ticket that I got when I was in Boston for interviews. No fault of the Boston programs, but I was like, not living here. Do not like this place. So uh, thankfully, the virtual process probably saves people from having maybe positive or negative connotations with the location of the of the program. For the record, let me just clarify. I cruised through a stoplight that may or may not have been on the redder side of the of the yellow light. But I was running late to the social. Like my flight was late. It was winter in Boston. I cruised through the light, got this ticket. Not a good start to the whole season. It, that that was just a signal to the program you were going to be a dedicated resident. Right. I will get to my shift on time, regardless of what it takes. All right. Well, slight digression there. You know, I also have to share. I interviewed someone this year who signaled us, but didn't list Pacific as a region where they wanted to be. And I thought that is really fascinating to me. So I asked this applicant, I said, can I just ask you, because you signaled our program, which is really great, but it it doesn't look like you even listed Pacific as a region that you're interested in living in. Can you help me understand that? And what was interesting is this applicant said their understanding for the geo preferences was that they should list it if they had a tie to that region and they didn't have a tie to the region. So they didn't list it. And that to me also was really telling because sometimes I'll look at applications and if applicants have the option to either just say no preference or they don't have to list Pacific. And I'm always a little bit wary of someone that, you know, applies to us, but doesn't list Pacific as one of their regions. And I think, gosh, are they really serious about moving to the West Coast? But that was really enlightening to me and maybe an opportunity for us as program leaders and as a specialty to really help guide applicants on how to use those geo-preferencing and maybe signals as well. Yeah, the geo-preferencing was definitely more confusing to me than the preference signaling. And uh, I had to read through the rules about what data we got to see as PDs several times to really understand. Again, it's uh, designed to favor applicants, which I think is great, but it, there's all strategy to this as an applicant, I'm sure. And for, for sure, that one is 
tougher to navigate in my mind than the true preference signaling. I have a question for you guys. So let's say the student writes in no preferencing. I mean, thank goodness, Sarah, you asked them about the discrepancy, but what if they go in, should they bring up their geo-preferencing discrepancies or just let that be? Because it sounds like it's interpreted in different ways and different programs just on the side of the applicant sitting in the shoes in the seats of applicants. That's a really good question, Michelle. I see the geo-preferencing and the signals as being really that point where we're making the decision about who we invite to interview. And in fact, we're explicitly told we should not use signals and making our rank list. It's really just supposed to be part of that decision of who we invite to interview. So I think if we get to the point where I'm sitting Zoom to Zoom with an applicant, and even if they didn't geo-preference the Pacific, at that point, I probably don't need a major explanation about why they didn't because they've chosen to keep the interview invitation that I extended to them. So to me, that tells me they're serious enough about it to consider moving to California. It's a great question though. Aaron, what do you think? Yeah, I agree a thousand percent. I think once we've decided to interview someone and and they're sitting in front of me on their Zoom screen, um, all that stuff goes out the window and we're going to assess their candidacy based on the merits of their interview and their application and the preferences of Moot Point. Perfect. Because I'm just imagining right now, everyone's like, oh my God, I didn't write anything under geo preferences. My world is over. Another chicken little phenomenon going on. But it sounds like once you're in the door, you're good in terms of whatever you put for geo preferencing. That sounds great. Absolutely. I think it's a perfect summary, Michelle. So the other thing that really struck me in thinking about signals and geo preferencing is about our wait list. And specifically for me here at Stanford, I had far fewer cancellations this year than I've had in prior years. And I'll be honest, anytime an applicant cancels an interview with us, I'm a little bit sad because we put a lot of thought into who we invite. And each person we invite, it's because they have something special that we want to know more about. So there's a little piece of me that's sad when someone cancels. But it's also this big win because I'm like, oh my gosh, this is great. I get to pull someone off my wait list. We have so many great people on my wait list. This year, I had a fraction of the cancellations that I've had in past years. And I was reflecting on this. And I think the geo-preferencing of signals probably makes a difference because we're more likely inviting people that are serious about moving to California and people that are serious about our program. But I don't know. I Maybe I'm being a little bit naive about that. I don't know. Aaron, what do you think? What's been your experience with cancellations this year and moving people off your wait list? I would say very similar to your experience, Sarah. And if you know me at all, I am not naive or charitable in my interpretations of how these things go usually, but I want to take that approach here and suggest that hopefully this is because the signals work and they're doing what they're supposed to do for both us and for the applicants where we're bringing in the door a group of folks that want to be with us as trainees and we want them. And that's that's the whole spirit of the match, right? That Maybe that's the, the first time you'll hear me praise the match, but um, that's what should happen, right? That's, that's the intent. So I think it's actually working. Um, and we, in a similar vein, have had far fewer cancellations this year, I think is the result of that. Yeah, I agree. And I think going back to that ERAS data, we saw this decrease in the average number of applications per student. 
And so maybe students also are thinking a bit more because they're having to put in geo-preferencing and signaling. Maybe they're also thinking a little bit more about the programs that they're seriously considering applying to or going to and maybe narrowing down their list a little bit in advance instead of using these interview invitations as their way to narrow down programs. Indeed, yeah. You know, they have that graph they publish about if you secure this number of interviews, you're basically guaranteed to match. And um, when I advise students in the past, I would talk about that magic number and, and that's what you really want to shoot for. And maybe now, to your point, it's much less about getting to that magic number and then stopping accepting offers and more, hey, let me be strategic about what I actually want out of this process and where I want to go. And that's a win. Absolutely. Let's segue to one of the last parts of this podcast, which is the post-interview communication. And I know this is especially confusing for students, but honestly, also for the PD about like, what are we supposed to do after the interview is over? Should students send thank you notes? Do I need to send a response to every thank you note? Do we know what to do? And Aaron, I know you have a paper that got published on this topic. So why don't you uh, help Michelle and I understand what we should be doing and are there any best practices? Yeah, absolutely. So I can't take personal credit for the paper. I was a co-author, but it was one of our wonderful education fellows at the time, now faculty, Dr. Jewell, who was the lead author. And we wrote about this because it is, it's super anxiety provoking, right? As an applicant, I don't know about you two. I spent hours writing handwritten thank you notes when I was applying for residency programs. And you wonder like, does this make a difference? Does it matter? So um, what should you do? The, the long and the short of it is it's complicated. And unfortunately, this paper doesn't add a ton of new insight into it, but I'll give you the data. So we asked, this was in 2018. So after the 2017, 2018 match, and we asked about a hundred applicants to our training program, whether or not they received an interview, whether or not they put us on the rank list. We sent a survey to all of these folks and we asked them questions about did you write thank you notes not to programs? Why did you write thank you notes? Did you feel like you needed to? Did you feel like they would inter influence your position on the rank list? And we asked the same set of questions to about 100 program directors across the country. Do you care about thank you notes? How do they influence applicant position on your rank list, et cetera? And it was interesting. The majority of applicants sent thank you notes. Most of them used email, which makes sense. Some of them spent hours and hours like me. Hopefully most of them just fired off quick things. But the most interesting thing for me and our co-authors was that about 20% of those applicants who had thank you note kind of post-interview communication, they actually changed their rank order based on the communication they got back around their thank you note. In, in the PD world, our world now, it was similar. 20% of PDs actually felt like whether or not they received a thank you note and the contents of that thank you note could influence where an applicant moved on the rank list. So I don't, I can't pretend that I understand the rationale behind those numbers, but those were the numbers and it was interesting. I don't know if either of you have insight or thought into why that might be. Yeah. Well, Aaron, first, let me just tell you that your story about handwritten thank you notes brought up this repressed memory I have of like agonizing over the type of cards, even. I was like, should they be blue or should they be yellow? And should I use this kind of pen? Like the amount of anxiety I had about these thank you notes was very real. So, oh, yeah. Is it going to be really formal? Or are you going for a light and funny approach? Well, the results of this paper were also really interesting to me because so my practice is 
I do try to respond to everything. I'm glad I do because of this paper telling me that maybe it makes a big difference for uh, applicants to get a response. There's always one or two that fall through the cracks of my of my inbox, but I do try to respond to all of them. Now, what's interesting is I don't track who sends me a thank you note. So I wonder about this influence on the rank list, how much of that is sort of that like a little bit of like an implicit bias of like, I remember that person, they were so warm and they sent this great note. And I just sort of know when I see their name on rank day, like that maybe they go up or down. Uh, but we certainly don't have a formal way of cracking who sends a note and definitely don't grade the quality of the note. But I do sometimes get some more information from from people from these thank you notes, most often in the form of them saying, wow, like I really walked away from my interview day with with Stanford feeling a lot different about your program. And I know so much more about it now, especially when someone maybe doesn't signal us. And then they respond in this way of like, wow, I actually was like really surprised or really impressed. That's definitely nice, nice to hear. But I, I don't know otherwise how it directly impacts the ring list. Michelle, I don't know. Do you have thoughts on this? So before signal preferencing happened, I kind of envisioned the thank you letter as an informal post-interview sitting link preference. I mean, sure, they may have sent it to everybody, but in my mind, they only sent it to me. And I felt like, especially if they said, you know, you guys are number one or top three, I wouldn't seriously listen to that. And I think that would bias my also ranking abilities. But I mean, now in the age of signal preferencing and now in the era of uh, of chat GPT, where you can fire off a ton of emails and responses, I'm not sure how much difference it's really going to make. Oh, Michelle, I might need you to help me with the chat GPT for email responses. My oh, inbox yeah. would, would thank you. You know, there was some interesting, and somebody wrote a, a response, a commentary to the paper, and I was fascinated by it because they argued that there is maybe something to this idea that on the applicant side of things, it's like, oh, this program really wants, so I'm going to be happier there. I'm going to fit in better. I'm going to enjoy my training more because they really want me as opposed to a place where, oh, maybe I'm just another number on the rank list. Of course, that's not any of our programs. Nobody's a number on the rank list, but those, those other places. And maybe it's the same way for PDs. I don't know if you get a class of folks that you match that you're like, gosh, these people are all really excited to be here. Like Maybe that does have some implicit influence on how you're going to rank them. Yeah. And I will say, I do look at thank you correspondence a little bit differently than that number one correspondence. And I do track the people that send me the number one letters and it I can definitely get someone a bump on the rank list if if they're if I know they're ranking us number one. Not always, but sometimes I think it can get a little bit of a bump. So that's a good distinction, Michelle. And I do look at those two types of communication a little bit differently. Sarah, can I give some unsolicited advice here? Is this a good opportunity to interject? Oh, yes. Um, I'm all about this is this is the Match Advice Podcast, Aaron. More advice, better. I love it. Okay. So unsolicited advice. Please do not tell us that you're ranking us number one and then don't do it. That is a serious no-no. It reflects poorly on you and the end of the small world. And that will come back around at some point when you don't expect it in the course of your career. And it's not worth it. Just don't do it. Aaron, I think that is maybe the best advice that has been given out on this podcast. That's it. We're shutting the doors. Ember. We are 42 episodes. That's number one. I love it. I'm I'm dropping the AirPods, so to speak. <laughs> I still no. remember the one person that did that in 2009. 
that's how like long of memory this happens. Yeah. Yep. I remember the first time this happened to me as a program director and we still talk about that applicant here in our program. It's a small world for sure. So totally. great advice, Aaron. All right. Well, let's let's get close to the end here. I'm going to turn it over to Michelle now because after all of this, these months of Aaron and I interviewing other people, putting them on the spot, I think only fair for us to get put in the spot a little bit. So Michelle, I know you said you had a couple of questions that you wanted to ask us. I do. Let's turn the table, shall we? And I would love to ask you some questions, mainly because we are right now smack in the middle of interview season, is that, you know, you always end the, well, usually people end interviews with, do you have any questions for us? And I am really curious, thinking about the second half of interview season, maybe I can help those applicants, is one, what are potentially some great insightful questions that you've heard that make you say, hmm, that was a wonderful question. They've really put some thought into that. And two, what are red flag questions that you hear where you just all sorts of uh, alarms are setting off in your head and you're like, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> I would just love to know here what experiences you've had so far. Yes. Well, again, three months in, I feel like I've got a good collection of of questions that I have been asked by applicants. I, I do I frequently get the question about my vision for the program, but I like that question because I do think for students, it's nice to know like, where is this program director taking this program? Not just like what changes do you see? It's a subtle difference because I also also get asked, what changes do you see in the next couple of years? That's a really important question for people to ask. But that vision question, I think, really gets to that, like, what is the spirit of this program and like what's happening in this program? The question that I'm asked also fairly regularly, that is a good question, but I really, I really struggle with is when an applicant asks me to describe how I've been able to support a resident who's struggling because, and, and I know why they ask that. And I think it's an important question from the applicant perspective, but it's our our approach is so individualized. And I know Aaron's is as well. Anytime you have a resident that's struggling, it's a very individualized approach to help help a resident. And I really struggle with providing enough detail for the applicant to understand our process, but without outing anybody and without really revealing too much. So I always find this tension between sharing enough that the applicant feels like I'm giving them a sincere answer and that they can really take away, okay, what does this program do? But then also respecting the confidentiality of of residents who have had a struggle in our program. Aaron, I don't know, do you want to talk about good questions and then we can go to not great questions? Yeah. Let me first give you a kudos on that answer because that that's my answer as well. It's really, it's an important question and also a really challenging one to articulate details while protecting anonymity. And I think it is. It's That's probably the right answer is it's really individualized. And we're going to focus on exploring the unique factors that led this person to be in this situation. And then we're going to help design a unique plan to help get them out of it. So I, I think you're right. That's that's exactly what we do. So it must be right. Yes. So yeah, two up two program directors agree that's the best. <laughs> so other great questions that I get, and and this is sort of cheating because as part of my introduction to the program and my PD 20 minutes to start the day, 
One of the last things I share with folks is a question I think they should all ask of programs at which they interview. And then I get to talk about how great we are in that regard. But the question is, where uh, does emergency medicine sit in the hierarchy of your health system? In other words, are we second-class citizens to a house of medicine or surgery? Where is the health system prioritizing dollars and resources and proactive planning? Because I think that is much more important to a trainee experience over three or four years than you would think being in an applicant shoes. It it dictates so much about you know, what's your clinical experience like and you know, what sort of resources do you have educationally and how can you kind of cut through all the red tape and the administrative hurdles and just take great care of your patients and do your job in learning emergency medicine. So I think that is a underutilized but really valuable thing to ask. Yeah. And I really think that reflects some higher level thinking from the applicant and really seeing emergency medicine as this like piece of this larger healthcare system. And like those are sort of the the big thinkers and visionaries. So I I like that question. All right, let's talk about not great questions. This is probably like the better part of the question, Michelle. I would say it's sort of like the saying, right? Like there's no, there's no stupid questions. And there are because all the questions that I get asked are important for a variety of different reasons. But I think the point here is like, what is the question you are going to ask the program director with the short time you have face-to-face with that person? And also, what are the questions that only a program director can answer? There's a lot of questions that residents can answer. You can get off of the website. So for me, it's when applicants ask me something that first of all is like, very clearly on our website. As much as applicants want to know that their interviewers that their interviewers have reviewed their applications, I want to know that the applicants have taken a look at our website. We put a lot of thought and effort into what we put on our website, how we lay it out. And if I have someone that asks me something that I'm like, that is just very clearly on our website, but that tells me that maybe they haven't done their homework, haven't taken this interview very seriously. And then the questions about how how much time off they have how to get involved with mood lighting, sort of like leading off with this question about like, how how can I work less is just raises some red flags. And there's just not enough time to really dig into what, where that's coming from and, and why that question is being asked. Yeah, Sarah, I completely echo that sentiment. I think there are just different audiences for different questions. All of the questions you're going to ask have merit, certainly. And you want to know those logistical details and you want to know the nitty gritty stuff about how much time do I have off? And like, does the administration really value my feedback? You got to think about who you're asked. If you're interviewing for a corporate job, like you're not going to ask the vice president about how much sick time you have. That just, I think that that's what I'll convey in, in the answer to this is the questions that you ask, particularly to the PD, really belie your underlying motives behind pursuing that place as a training environment. And maybe this is unfair, but they sort of suggest like, what are your priorities going to be as a resident? And so you're sending a message to all of us with the, the topics you choose to ask about. So big picture, visionary things, high level questions, great, awesome stuff about applicants ask me all the time, hey, tell me about Madison. And I'm like, Madison's great. I, w- I would love to tell you all about Madison, but I'm not sure that's why you should choose our program because of the city in, in which it's located. Like, sure, that's a factor, but 
I, I'd much rather you're focused on what's this program like substantively and how's it going to support me in my, my education. So it sends me a message right or wrong about what your priorities are when you choose a topic for your question. Yeah. You know, and Aaron, I will just follow that part up because I actually appreciate getting asked about moving to the Bay. But for me, it's because I am not from California. I have only lived here for now three and a half years. I moved here from the Midwest. I actually didn't even really want to move to California. And I tell applicants this in my intro. Michelle's like, what? You're not, Michelle. Now I know why everybody Yeah, My husband's like, we're not leaving here, right? Like, yeah, no, that's fine. We're not going to leave. But I do talk about this. So I think there's that subtle difference of I actually don't mind getting asked, tell me what it was like to move to the Bay as someone who's not from California versus tell me about Madison, especially for you, Aaron, because you've been there for, for so long. You don't necessarily come with this perspective of like, fresh eyes on like, what is it like to move here? So I can definitely see that that piece of it. Yeah. And I spin my answer the same way of, hey, I, I actually am from New England and I never thought I'd live in Wisconsin. And now I've been here almost a decade, but I highlight what a great work environment is. And this is why I, I came here primarily. And yeah, it's really nice to be able to live in a place like this and also practice really high level academic EM. But you know, I talk less about the dog parks and the bike trails and, and stuff. What I'm getting is this is actually timeless back when I was APD, but it sounds like some students still treat the the question, the Q&A at the very end as like interview is over. But it's really not. What questions you ask is still part of the interview process and be very thoughtful about what you ask. The end of one PD of the whole program, what questions you have for them that only they could answer. So I love those answers. Thank you for sharing your experiences. But maybe if I could just pivot one more, squeeze in one more last question, which is, this is another year of virtual interviews. Year to year, it seems like things have just been evolving. I'm curious if anything has changed from even last year for interview season that you can reflect on. Yeah, for me, and here at Stanford, really everything has been pretty much the same from last year. We already tried to slim down our interview day quite a bit. We just have about a three-hour, five-minute interview day. I did change my 15-minute PD intro to be a little bit more sort of big picture and a little bit less in the weeds about like volumes and types of patients and locations of uh, the practice sites because all of that is on the website. I don't want to be completely redundant. So I try to focus a little bit more on sort of me as a program director or what I see for the program. I don't know, Aaron, what about you? Yeah. So when I open my interview day remarks, I remind applicants that the interview day is mostly for them. Obviously, we get something from it, but especially since we're not in person and it's virtual, I want them to get a sense of our culture and our philosophy. And to your point earlier, Sarah, our, our mission, our vision. And but there's there's great training in a lot of places, but our great training is not necessarily your great training. So it's a really individualized match. And I want them to know as much about our program and have the interview day as be as applicant-centric as possible. So we each year, we kind of do informal roundtables at the end of the season with home med students. And we kind of figure out what's out there, what do they like about what other places are doing. And that's led us each year to kind of tweak and change stuff. And it's mostly been to slim things down and to really try to focus on providing the information, the context that the applicants say they want. And so it's more time with the residents. It's 
fewer interviews with faculty and shorter interviews, more time for them to ask questions. Stuff that, you know, again, is as applicant-centric as we can make it. Perfect. Thanks for those answers. And that concludes my asking of questions of you. And I expect some letters handwritten later. Love about the mess for you. I am definitely ranking you number one, Michelle. And they, they need it. All right. Well, thank you, Aaron and Michelle, for another fantastic Match Advice podcast. Uh, really appreciated the opportunity to digest some of these numbers with with both of you and talk a little bit about your shared experiences. And hopefully for our audience, being able to walk away with some tangible advice and things that they can really take to their next interviews and their, their rank lists and passing on advice to future students that are going to come behind them. So thank you both. Happy holidays. Happy rest of your interview season. And can't wait to connect with both of you on Match Day. Thanks so much. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for joining us for this episode of EM Match Advice. You can listen to any of our episodes for free on Podbean. You can also check out a summary of today's episode as a blog post on alium.com. 